So I want you to think about the last time you wrote a letter. Not an email, not a text, not a tweet. Something, I want you to think about the last time you wrote something that really took time, that you wanted to make sure you laid out exactly right. Something really important that you wanted to communicate to somebody, old school. How did you start your letter? How did you end it? This morning, we're wrapping up a mini-series on the book of Galatians, which, before anything else, is a letter. It's a personal and pastoral communication that Paul wrote to a specific church in Galatia. And the context of that church was that they were working out what it means to be the multi-ethnic family of God, really for the first time in Christian history. Because for centuries, God's people were synonymous with the Jewish people, right? So if you wanted to follow Yahweh, you had to embrace Judaism. You had to become circumcised and live as a Jew, religiously but also culturally and ethnically. But now in the Messiah, Jews and Gentiles are being invited to sit at the same family table without assimilating to one ethnic identity or another. So we started our series, the lectionary started us in chapter 3 of Galatians, where Paul clarifies that, yes, this means there is now no hierarchy among God's children. There's no specially privileged race or class or gender in God's family. If you are in the Messiah, you are equally heirs with the Messiah. You are all one in Christ, he said. And then last week, uh, we were in chapter 5, where Paul says that because of this, we're now free to live not by the regulations of the Jewish law, but now in Christ, we are free to live by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, he says, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In the new covenant community of God, the Spirit teaches us how to love. It teaches us how to swim without the floaties of the law, as Michael illustrated. So helpfully. And now, in chapter 6, Paul is wrapping it all up, right? He's making his final arguments and really offering his final instruction to the church. So think back to the letters you've written. You know, you might say a lot of stuff throughout your letter, but your ending is your last chance to summarize your main point, you know, maybe to express the love and care with which you've written this letter. The ending is very, very important to understanding the letter as a whole. And that's what Paul is doing here. There's a whole lot in the last chapter, and it can sort of seem just like a collection of random things. You know, everything Paul forgot to say earlier, he's just throwing it in there now. But actually what we see is that he's drilling down and getting more specific about the things he's been saying all along, all the way back to chapter one. So we're gonna read this chapter for what it is as the ending and the summary of Paul's whole letter to the Galatians, and of course, by extension, his letter to us. And if you're one of those people who likes three points, like myself, then today is your lucky day because we're going to break this chapter up into three sections, sort of three exhortations that Paul gives to the church. And I'm not going to tell you all three now because I want you to stay awake for the next 20 minutes. Um, but here's the first one. The first instruction that Paul leaves us with is to walk together in humility. Humility being the antithesis of pride, which of course was one of the big issues in the Galatian church. They were struggling against a system by which they could construct a sort of spiritual hierarchy. You know, which ones of us have the privileged place in the family and according to what standards? Of course, the church in every age has asked this question. 
Humanity in every age has asked this question. In our brokenness, we are desperately searching for ways to feel less broken. So what we do is we create systems by which we can say, well, at least I'm better than those people. We grasp for ways to tell ourselves that we are morally or intellectually or physically superior to others. Sometimes we do this in very silly ways. I grew up in the South, actually right here in Greenville, and I was trained by my peers growing up to believe that it's definitely better to be from the South than to be from the North, because it is. In fact, uh, when I went off to New Jersey for college, my friends said to me, Hannah, just don't come back married to a Yankee. <laughs> Which, spoiler alert, I took that as a personal challenge and did exactly that. Turns out I love Yankees. But I was told, oh, they're very loud, you know, and they're unfriendly. They won't even talk to you in the grocery store. And they drive way too fast. That last part is true. But my first year of college in New Jersey, I realized that this sort of geographical snobbery works both ways, because I made friends there with a girl from New York. And I went home to meet her family one weekend I was there, and they were all very intrigued to meet me, you know, like a real person from South Carolina. <laughs> and at my friend's house that weekend, her little brother, who was about 11 at the time, he asked me, he said, so do you guys have like cars and TVs down there? And we all laughed about it because it was obvious that he had also been trained to think that Southerners were not as good as Northerners. You know, they're backwards and uneducated. They may not even have access to modern technology yet. <laughs> it's a silly example, but I think it helps us to understand how many ways we do this, right? We want to feel better than because we hope that being better than will make us good enough. But Paul has already settled that question for the church. He says, it doesn't matter where you're from or what kind of accent you have, what kind of job you have, or even whatever you've done up to this point. You are all one in Christ. So stop comparing yourselves to each other. This is why he ends chapter 5 by saying, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And then in our chapter, he starts out by getting even more specific. He says, for example, if anyone is caught in a transgression, Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Going on, I'll paraphrase here. Restore others in humility, remembering that you are also capable of succumbing to temptation. Don't be deceived into thinking too highly of yourself. Now, in the church, and I think by parallel in the world generally, we often err on one side or the other of this instruction. Sometimes we err on the side of being too harsh. Instead of restoring each other, we cancel each other. You know, you say or do the wrong thing and you are out. That's it. There's no redemption. There's no grace. There's no room for nuance. But then on the other hand, and maybe as an overcorrection to this, instead of restoring each other, sometimes we just ignore each other. We ignore sin and harmful behavior in each other's lives. You know, to each his own. Who am I to judge? And then ironically, sometimes when we err on this side, this side of license, we then let that become the metric by which we compare ourselves and look down on others. And we say, you know, well, we aren't like those Christians. You know, that church down the road, that denomination that I left, they are so uptight, so self-righteous, so judgy. We're not like that at all. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? We almost can't help but pit ourselves against others. 
And the truth is we do need to be able to call each other out because sometimes we can be a little self-righteous and judgy. But the point Paul is making is that all of us are susceptible to that. All of us are susceptible to falling, to getting caught in sin even when we're trying to run from it. So we need to practice restoring each other gently. This is what it means to be a family. It means that when we get it wrong, because we will, we have brothers and sisters who will be there to restore us, not to condemn or to cancel us, but also not to let us go on in whatever harmful behavior we're stuck in. This word for restore in the Greek that Paul uses is katarizo, which is where we get the word to cauterize. Sin wounds us. And so often in the church, we look to those who are wounded in their sin, and then we wound them further by either ostracizing them or ignoring them, when what we are called to do is to heal them, to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Bear each other's burdens, Paul says. Walk together in humility. Now, before we move on to the next section, let me just say this. Maybe for you, the temptation is not to see yourself as better than. Maybe for you, the temptation is to see yourself as less than. Maybe you look at others in the church and you think, I could never measure up to that. Well, this word is for you too. Stop comparing yourself even to the people that you admire because you know what? God does not compare you either. This is the force of verse 4. Let each test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. In other words, when you see Jesus face to face, he will not ask you about anyone other than yourself. He is not going to say, why couldn't you just be more like so-and-so? Each will bear his own load. Each one of us has our own story that we are living before the Lord. He knows the struggles that are unique to you, the experiences and the traumas that have shaped you, and the work that is yours alone to do in light of that. Right now, my six-year-old and I are reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, which is about 10% for him and about 90% for me. <laughs> He's enjoying it, but I'm enjoying it more. And there's a scene we haven't come to yet in The Horse and His Boy where two children are riding through the desert on horseback, and each one of them is visited by a mysterious lion, you know, Aslan. But the lion seems to appear to them differently, and so they're trying to compare notes to make sense of what's happening. And when one of the children finally meets the lion, she asks him, she says, Aslan, what about the other girl? And he replies, child, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one is told any story but their own. Friends, don't compare yourself to anyone else. Not even God compares you. No one is told any story but their own. So let's walk together in humility. Second point, this is related to the first, so I won't spend quite as much time here. Paul instructs us to give to each other generously. Moving on to verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So this is just another way that we live together as a family, right? Practicing mutual aid. The one who devotes himself to the word for the benefit of others, uh, of those he teaches. And then those who hear and are blessed offer up what they have to provide for the teacher to continue doing that work. And I love that this isn't limited to money. Paul says, share all good things. 
And I imagine especially in the first century church, there were lots of in-kind gifts being offered up on Sunday mornings. You know, some people had cash and other people had crops, but all of it was fair game for generosity. In 2011, Michael and I spent a week serving a Christian community in South Sudan, where Michael preached his first sermon ever in a little tiny church in the bush under a mango tree. And after church, this beautiful congregation gifted us with three live chickens as a thank you gift. It was a very generous gift in the spirit of Galatians 6.6. But it's also in this spirit that churches pay a pastor's salary. And this isn't to make him rich off of God's people. This isn't about, you know, becoming a profiteer. Paul uh, has very strong words later on in the chapter for religious teachers who are trying to use people for their own gain. But this is about the mutual ministry of local people who are loving each other in tangible ways. This is about the family taking care of each other. But that's not all it is, because Paul goes on to say that when we give generously, we are sowing into something that will outlive its immediate purpose. So when you give, you aren't just meeting a need, although you are doing that, most likely. And when you give, you're not just expressing gratitude, though you may well be doing that too. When you give, you are sowing into a field that is much, much bigger than you can see with your eyes. And notice in the letter, Paul doesn't give us the option to sow or not to sow. Rather, the option is to sow to the spirit or to sow to the flesh. In everything we do, we are sowing into something. Everything is an investment, whether we're talking about money or time or attention or effort. So the question is, into which field are you sowing? Into which economy are you investing? And here's what we need to remember about sowing to the Spirit. Because it is this sort of otherworldly, this already not yet economy, we don't always see its harvest in the short term. You know, sometimes we do good, right? We commit ourselves to the hard work of generosity or gentleness or burden bearing, all this stuff we're talking about. And it can seem like we're just spitting into an ocean of need. Sometimes our obedience to the Spirit feels like it isn't producing anything tangible, either in our own lives or in the lives of those we love, to the point that we might even begin to question, is any of this even true? Is God even there? When you're sowing into a world that hasn't yet fully arrived, doubt and discouragement can come. And that's why Paul encourages us not to grow weary in verse 9. He says, keep doing good, and we will reap in due season if we do not lose heart. One day, the old economy of this world will pass away, and we will see the harvest of new creation with our own eyes. This is our hope, and it's the reason we don't give up. Last summer, I read the memoir of Daniel Nayeri, who is an Iranian refugee, and he tells the story of his family's conversion to Christianity and their subsequent escape from Iran to America, only to then struggle as poor brown children being raised by a single mother in the Midwest. And he writes it from the perspective of his 12-year-old self, so it's equal parts hilarious and tragic, and you should all go home and read it tonight. And at the end of the book, he reflects on the strength that he saw in his mother, you know, through everything that happened to them. 
And I think it really beautifully describes this tension of sowing into something that we can't see and how do you not lose heart? So I'm going to read it to you. He writes, I don't know how my mom was so unstoppable despite all the stuff that happened. I don't know. Maybe it's anticipation, hope, the anticipation that the God who listens in love will one day speak justice, the hope that some final fantasy will come to pass that will make everything sad untrue, unpainful, that across rivers of sewage and blood will be a field of yellow flowers blooming. You can get lost there and still be unafraid. No one will chase you off of it. It's yours. A father who loves you planted it for you. A mother who loves you watered it. And maybe there are other people there, but they're all kind. Or better than that, they're right with each other. They treat each other right. If you have that, maybe you keep moving forward. He goes on to say, I don't know if what my mother believes is true, but I know that what you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. What you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. That's the invitation. It's to keep moving forward, to keep doing good, to keep sowing in the present to a world that we believe is yet to come. And the way we do that, the way we find courage to persevere in doing good is this, third section, boast in the cross. Paul's last words in the letter, his last instruction to the church by way of his own example is to boast in the cross of Christ. Now, for a little context, Paul is speaking to a group of people who are staring down a real threat of persecution. In resisting circumcision, the Galatian church um, isn't just going to not be circumcised, but um, they also could expect to garner the hatred of the Jews and the suspicion of Rome, the oppressor. If they would just get circumcised, they could at least fit in with a recognized religion and enjoy some relative peace and safety. But of course, Paul tells them not to do that. And he accuses the circumcisers of pressuring the Galatians to save themselves. He says in verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. But far be it from me, he goes on in verse 14, far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which this world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but new creation. Now this word to boast is one of Paul's favorites. He uses it some 35 times in the New Testament, and it has a really interesting and layered history. So we tend to think of boasting more or less as the same thing as bragging. But in the ancient world, a boast also had a military connotation. A warrior would boast before a king or an opposing army to intimidate or to inspire. Now think of Goliath boasting before the Israelites and then David responding with his boast in the Lord. Think of Beowulf's famous boast in the Mead Hall before he goes up against the monster Grendel. He's getting people inspired and able to believe in him that he can really do this. Think of Mel Gibson in blue face paint, riling up the men of Scotland. I'm glad you know what I'm talking about. I've been working on my Scottish accent. It's not very good. But he says, I am William Wallace, and I see a whole army of countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. 
He's boasting in himself, but also to give these men courage to ride out and face their enemy, which is much bigger and scarier looking than they are. A boast, friends, is a battle cry. And notice again, we're not given a choice to boast or not to boast. We all boast in something. We all draw our courage, our confidence from somewhere. We all tell ourselves a story about who we are and why we get up in the morning and what's going to make it all okay in the end. The circumcisers wanted to boast in the flesh. They wanted to build a following of converts who would get in line and play by the rules and keep them safe from persecution. That's where they thought their safety, their salvation would come from. And what do you boast? What gives you confidence and courage in the battle to do good? Is it your resume? Is it the way people react to you on social media? Because that's fraught. Is it your job title? Your ministry? Is it a certain outcome for which you are praying? These things aren't bad, but they're contingent. They're vulnerable. They need to be redeemed along with the rest of creation. And that is why we boast in the cross. Because the cross is the first fruit of that redemption. The cross holds even when our families fall apart, when our ministries fail, and when our prayers seem unanswered. The cross is proof that new creation exists and is coming. That the field of yellow flowers which Daniel Nayeri's mother hoped in isn't just a fantasy, but a future our future. And not just out there in some disembodied place that leaves this world behind, but that future is here, as real as a man with scars in his feet and his hands. This is the story that we tell. This is our battle cry. Everything may fall apart in the here and now, but what we believe about the future changes how we live in the present. Amen? Amen.